So the first day I'm at the camp, the camp director's wife and I are in the kitchen. She's explaining to me how to wash the dishes. And I'm looking at the stack of dishes. They must have been dishes for about 200 people. She's explaining to me how to do the dishes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I know how to do the dishes. And then I thought, I'm not doing this. And I cuss her out and I walk out the front door. And I hear her say that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. She didn't run after me, get back in here or say, you're out of here, you're going home. No, she just spoke that phrase. Hey everyone, welcome to the Resolutions Podcast, where we like to turn difficult topics into helpful conversations. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. As this latest episode of the Resolutions Podcast drops, we are one month into the new year, 2023. This is a time of year in Western Appalachia where the weather patterns move from west to east over West Virginia and often the thick, low-floating gray winter clouds stall out as they move across the Ohio River Valley. We're talking cold, steely days where the daylight is short and dim. So what better time to do a podcast on discouragement and depression? (laughs) All joking aside, it is my pleasure to introduce you to a really unique theologian who has created a biblically-based strategy for finding freedom from discouragement, depression, and deception. Today's guest is Dr. Cheryl Giesbrecht-Turner. Dr. Turner, or Cheryl as she prefers, is a recovered drug addict, stage four cancer survivor, and former widow. She holds a Bachelor of Arts, a Master's in Ministries, and a Doctorate in Theology. She is the author of several books and has been published many times over via columns, articles, blogs, and devotionals. Cheryl's most recent book, Unraveling the Lie Knot, is a Bible-based how-to manual for combating discouragement and depression. And it does this by taking readers on a journey into the past where we recognize the falsehoods and lies that deceive our sense of worth and identity, uh, that rob us of hope and lead us into life-altering negative coping. Uh, Dr. Turner's down-to-earth approach to theology and the truth that sets us free is showcased in every chapter of Unraveling the Lie Knot. I read this book some months ago, and I immediately reached out and invited her on the podcast, and she graciously accepted the invitation. Now, a quick note on some terminology you will hear in this episode. Cheryl and I refer numerous times to stronghold busters. This is referring to a unique intervention strategy that addresses false self-narratives and negative patterns of thinking or strongholds in our psyches. The biblical and psychological premise concerning strongholds is that our inner beliefs always direct our outward behavior. Dr. Turner, Cheryl, breaks down the anatomy of a stronghold in her book and then demonstrates the effectiveness of deconstructing the false beliefs or narratives and shows the reader how to reconstruct an inner narrative of grace and truth. This essentially is a stronghold buster. 
So with that in mind, we pick up now on my conversation with Dr. Cheryl Giesbrecht Turner. Initially, you'll hear us exchanging some thoughts on depression, and then Cheryl goes into her personal story of victory. At the end of the interview, I will be back with some closing thoughts and some helpful resource links. If you would just walk us through, you know, from a from a listener standpoint, um, you know, you talk about transformative thinking as far as that ad- addresses trauma, and uh, and specifically, what I love about you know your latest book here uh, is you talk specifically about addressing discouragement, deception, and depression, right? So, yes, what does that look like from a theological standpoint? Yeah, so I'm sure that your listeners are up on some of these definitions. So you probably already heard that discouragement is a feeling of loss of confidence or enthusiasm, lost hope or confidence, even a failure or difficulty that discourages someone. And I really believe that discouragement, when properly handled through knowing God's word and choosing to believe the truth, can be turned around. So, and we'll talk about kind of some remedies for discouragement after we talk about um, the next thing, which is is depression, which you know about clinical depression. And and it's more than just a state of feeling sad. Um, It can be a serious medical condition. It can also be accompanied by feelings of despondency and dejection. So, you know, there's clinical depression and Some of those have to do with postpartum depression and other types as well. So the second type of clinical depression is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which you alluded to with your military veterans. But many people don't understand that there are also those in America that have PTSD because they've witnessed a car accident or they've witnessed a motorcycle wreck or different things like that. And then the third type of depression is despair. Despair is really the complete loss or absence of hope. And this is the person that thinks that they don't have any belief that the situation will change. Mm -hmm. And that's really um, a choice, I believe. And people that are in despair, they don't really like hearing that. But in order to tell them the truth from God's word, we can say, I believe that choosing despair is the choice to forget God and that he can help you. So what we do when we are in despair is we basically say there's no hope and there's no God if there's no hope, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How, um, you know, just to continue your line of thinking here, uh, you know, and giving us some really good, good principles for your strategy. Um, how, how do those, those, that triad, it's just such a, you know, I, I it just such a depressing triad. There's, there's three things. <laughs> How do you, how do you address those? You know, let's, let's talk about that, you know, uh, from, from God's word, a special revelation standpoint. So it's learning how to tell yourself the truth and say no to the enemy's thoughts, those lies that he has um, put in your mind. Um, But it talks about choosing to tell yourself the truth in discouragement, especially Remembering John 16, 33 really helps me because just to know that we're not alone. And the, the scripture says, these things have I spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. All of us will. And that's my own little paraphrase there. But take Mm -hmm. courage. I have overcome the world. So just reminding yourself that it's he's the overcomer. You don't have to do anything but trust God. And it's like relaxing in your favorite easy chair, your lawn chair, wherever you like to rest. But it's also telling yourself the truth from Psalm 42, 5 that says, why am I discouraged? You know, this is where David talks to his heart and says, why is my heart so sad? And then he chooses something. He says, I will. That's a choice to say to yourself, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again. And, you know, praising God before things change, that's really hard. But you say thank you that you can even think that and change how your thoughts are landing in your head, but then saying to him, you are my savior and my God. We don't save ourselves. Jesus has already done it. Another scripture that I just love is Lamentations 22, 27. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's what we have to do. We have to say to ourselves, because of the Lord's great love, it's all because of him. We are not consumed. What does consumed mean? It means we're overwhelmed, we're burned up, we're you know taken over. No, you can say it's because of the Lord's great love that I'm not consumed by these things and I'm not choosing to be depressed, discouraged, despaired, or decept or deceived because it's God's compassions that never fail. And then listing those things and in, in uh, Lamentations 3.23, they are new every morning. Make a list of things that you are thankful for. Every day, there are so many things that we can thank God for. Today, I'm thanking him for my coffee. What about you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's such a great point. Uh, it's not, it's, uh, you know, I think the person that taught me that more than anybody else is uh, when I would tuck my kids in at night. Uh, this one evening, my my daughter took the time to thank God for a peanut butter milkshake that she had that day. <laughs> <laughs> I, love it. I just thought... That's pretty good. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. And and so much of what you're talking about, I love the fact that you backed up and you talked about how David had this sense of, you know, some some theologians would call it preaching to your soul, but you give yourself a talking to. And, you know, one of the things that, that you use, I know that we use here uh, in our clinic is the importance of verbal processing, even when you're by yourself, because you know, your brain will recognize your voice as the most trusted and recognizable voice that it knows. And so therefore your guard is dropped and you can deposit some truth very deeply in your soul. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And it may seem like, you know, we're, we're giving a prescription of, you know, certain who I am in Christ, positive, uplifting statements for people who've put their faith in Jesus. But it's all, it's so much more than that. And that's what you're talking about. There's aspects of, of gratitude and aspects of truth and, and so forth. I mean, am I in the ballpark there with that? Yes. Talk to yourself, have, have a meeting with yourself. And, and you can, when you say these things aloud, you hear yourself in your own voice, but guess what? So does the deceiver, the liar, the accuser of the brethren. He hears you say that too. And God honors his word. God Mm. sends forth his word and it heals us. Mm. And I'm not saying that we can heal ourselves, but we allow the Holy Spirit permission to heal us when we trust him by speaking his word out. And it's just such a blessing to do it, not just 
because we like to hear our own voice. Some people can't stand the sound of their voices, but it really does something when you hear yourself speak what's already true. It's not because Cheryl or Chris says it. It's because God says it. Right. And it's volitional, right? It's an act of our will to make a confession like that. And that in and of itself is an expression of faith, even when we think our faith is weak, you know, yes. or, or not, not sufficient enough. Um, so, so let's, let's move beyond the practical uh, here. Um, what, what's your backstory? You know, Cheryl, you oh. alluded to a little bit of a, of what sounded like a, a troubled youth, uh, but, yeah. uh, but talk to us a little bit. What's, what's your backstory here, you know, of your formative years growing up and, and so forth. So uh, I think I'll take you back to my mom had good intentions by putting me in a ballet class when I was between five and six years old. I was always a tall girl, taller than all the boys, always a little bit big boned. Um, so I go into this ballet class and I'm the tallest girl. I'm also not real uh, skinny in this little leotard that most of these little girls wear. You know, there were all these bean poles and here I am, you know, filled it out pretty good. And mm -hmm. these ladies or these young ladies started making fun of my outward appearance, giving me labels that I ended up believing. And I took these labels like you're fat, you're ugly, you look like a leotard or you look like a sausage in that leotard. Oh, and wow. those things were um, labels that, you know, parents don't know sometimes to say things like, you know, just tell yourself the truth. God says that you are loved, you're accepted by him. Mm. Instead of doing that, um, because my parents didn't have the tools that I use for my own children and my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Uh, they said sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you. Well, I found out that that's not true that because not true. I tried and it didn't work. Right. So I go into um, the next year in elementary school. My parents moved around a lot. My dad was an insurance man. And so every time he groomed a sales team to the point that they were making a lot of money for the corporation, they moved him around a lot. So it was always a new school, a new neighborhood, new church. Mm -hmm. New friends mm -hmm. starting over for me was not good because I I was still not sure of myself and those labels went with me wherever I went. Um, so by the time I was between 11, 12, 13 years old, I decided the next place that my parents would move us to, I would do whatever it took to help me fit in. And those were things that I thought would work for me to help me to be popular and also be smarter. And that was smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, taking street drugs. So by the time I was 13, I was a full-on drug addict. Where, where and, were you living at 13? Can you, do you mind me asking? Like where, no. like the 13 year old, I'm assuming for you to have that much access, you know, to, to drugs, um, yes. there's gotta be a certain amount of lack of supervision and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of freedom there. Right. So where were you? Yes. We lived in Davis, California, which was a big, is a university of California, Davis town. Okay. So there were lots of college students that had available uh, drugs for us. And uh, so, yeah, it was during those Woodstock years too. So mm -hmm. that was all, you know, the, the big thing was going to the concerts. And so I was into all that for four years the labels continued to go with me. And I also, these were coping skills, coping mechanisms that I thought would help me to feel better about myself. But you, 
you can probably only understand that they made me feel a lot more uh, an outcast um, in so many ways. So I'm thankful that God protected me from a lot of things. And some of the things that happened to me during that four years were horrible, but it also was the enemy's way of of, uh, getting into more areas of deception and more, more areas of adding to the lies and tangling me up even further. So um, at the summer before my senior year of high school, my parents arranged a uh, day for me to go up to a Christian camp for the summer uh, to, to be uh, on staff there. And so it now it's just remarkable to me that this even happened because here I am a full-on drug addict taking all my drugs with me to work at a Christian camp for the summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, that's not funny, but it's like, oh, wow. No, did you I have, know. let me jump in. Did you have siblings? I did. I was the oldest of four kids. I oldest am. of four kids. Me too. Um, so, and, and so Christian home then? Yeah, we were Christians, not really um, very grounded in church. Oh yeah. I was going to church the whole time and still things like, you know, and that was the other thing that the people in my youth group, my church, They were like, well, you need to clean up your act. You need to get rid of your black fingernails, your crazy hair, clothes, all those things that I was trying to get attention with that were the wrong type of attention, but they did not accept me. And and so here I go to this camp. And that was what was crazy in that thinking that they didn't search my stuff. Um, They didn't tell me what my church people had told me to do, you know, clean up your act, clean up your mouth, clean up your you know, appearance and all that to go to anger management classes. And they just love me. And uh, it's just so amazing that. So the first day I'm at the camp, the the camp director's wife and I are in the kitchen. She's explaining to me how to wash the dishes. And I'm looking at the stack of dishes. They must've been, I I mean, probably dishes for about 200 people. And I thought I was hallucinating. She was explaining to me how to do the dishes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I know how to do the dishes. And then I thought I'm not doing this. And I cuss her out and I walk out the front door and I hear her say that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. She didn't run after me, get back in here or say, you're out of here. You're going home. No, she just spoke that phrase. The same thing happened the next day, different chore, different camp person, but it just crazy that the Lord would use that phrase. Of course, I didn't know if they were in cahoots or that they were having the staff meeting. I just know that God's word was the one, the thing that really ministered to my heart. It melted my heart. It changed my mind and my thinking because at the end of two weeks, I was alone. I was in my sleeping bag one night and I, I realized that I'd been thinking about this this scripture or uh, this phrase that I didn't know at the time was scripture. And I realized I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is ask the Lord to forgive me. It was God's love that was going to cover all of the things that I couldn't forgive myself from. My drugs, alcohol, all the things that I couldn't remember that happened. And it was that night that I received Jesus as my savior. And I thank God for that day. Thank God for that day. So that really, too, helped me understand what transformational thinking is about, because it was because of that summer of 1974 that God allowed me the opportunity to really work out discipleship. My little Gideon Bible, it was a backpack camp up in Lake Tahoe, California. 
my little Gideon Bible and my group of junior high girls, they went with me everywhere. And we, you know, we got to know Jesus that summer. That's phenomenal. Um, the generalized lie that I'm picking up, you know, as you're, as you're talking through this is that, that you're somehow not enough, but what, what were some of the deeper lies that Mm -hmm. looking back, you now realize a big one. So the original lie, as I've sorted this out through, and now really it, it's, it's, I just thank the Lord for the process of it all, because wouldn't it be easier if we knew exactly what to focus on, Mm. but it was the rejection, the lie of rejection Mm. that if you are not enough, if you don't do what they want you to do, or if you think that you have to be better, um, it's, it's just so complicated but um, one of my stronghold busters, actually, it's been a stronghold buster for me, which is a process of coming against a habit, uh, a coping mechanism that I learned that ha- now I'm learning about more about it. But one of my scriptures is Romans 831. If God is for you, who can be against you? Yeah. Because when you when you realize that it really doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what God thinks. And because in Christ, we are, you know, accepted, secure, significant. What does that mean? It means that he loves us unconditionally, that we are safe, that nothing and no one can remove us from the palm of his hand, and that he has an important plan for us. It it is important, and that's our, our significance, but it's finding out that all of these things really can help other people. And that's always been for me because I've, I've still felt in some ways this lie comes back and, and something about stronghold busting that, you know, people say, well, once you go through a stronghold buster, why do you need to do it again? Well, the enemy is not going to stop lying to us until we're with Jesus. So we have to just say, Hey, I've got you now. I know you're going to come back and it's going to be, he's going to try and make us think that it's a different lie, but it never is. It's usually the same one. It comes back in a more creative format, right? Yeah, that's such a good point. We're going to talk about, you know, actually what we're referring to as stronghold busters here in a minute. But, you know, I, I think it's, to me, it's always striking how when Jesus wanted to clearly explain the kingdom and the concept of faith, he took a little child and put the child right in the middle of the, the crowd so that they could consider the things that he was explaining to them from that perspective. So it's probably little wonder that there's such an onslaught, you know, for the for the mind of children historically, you know, throughout throughout mankind's history, you know, here, uh, but uh, but especially just so diabolical. That yeah, even true. in homes that are not fractured, they're together, there is some semblance of, of Christianity, uh, there's always a little bit of a, of, of a gap sort of in the firewall, even around the strongest homes to where this doubt and the experience of rejection can sow the seed of maybe I'm not lovable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if that gets in there, you know, even from a, you know, from a Christian perspective, the, you know, I think the biggest thing that the, that the enemy ultimately wants us to do is to doubt God, 
that that was the attack on on Adam and Eve. That was the the temptation of Jesus. And I think you know it's it's most of our testimonies before we really began to know the love of God. You'll begin to try to meet your own needs outside of God's provision because you begin to believe I need to take care of myself. Exactly. You begin to believe I know what's best for me. You begin to believe even if God does know what's best for me, he won't give it to me. He's reluctant, you know, and at that point, that's the type of, uh, of hijacking, you know, in our soul that can take place, you know, with deception, with, with discouragement, with depression, right? Yes, it's true. Yeah. So as you're, as you're recognizing, uh, you know, after your, this, this conversion at camp, which is like, I'm imagining you as a 17 year old, this is a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, that transformation and you're, you're sort of set apart in a way, in a space where the Holy Spirit can really do a lot of work and your, your, the illumination of the scriptures and so forth. What was the journey like after that, after coming home and, you know, how much of a, of a concerted effort was there, not just with your own uh, wellness and being intentional about that, but having others help you? <laughs> well, um, since I cut school so much, my junior year of high school, I was not supposed to graduate. And I talked to my teachers and my parents about wanting to graduate from high school. All my teachers worked with me really very diligently to help me get my, my assignments caught up. And I was able to graduate from high school with my class in 1975. But um, it wasn't without a lot of um, opposition because my partying friends were determined to have me come and party. In fact, they would call me and say, hey, we're coming over to pick you up. And and I would let, tell my mom, tell me that I can't go. And of course, they knew that I would just sneak out if I wanted to go anywhere. But I told them, I said, you know, I'm I'm not interested. And and one of my good friends, he still he and I like to hike a lot because obviously I was a hiker because of backpacking camp for the summer of '74. And prior to that too, I've always been a really avid outdoors person. But one of my friends, um, and I won't say his name, he had really wanted to go hiking with me and he was still smoking a lot of weed. And so he took one of the hikes that we went on was a day hike and it was quite a while, like 10 to 15 miles. And, and so that day he said, Hey, you know, I look what I brought. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I mean, it was like, I just totally turned from all of that. I, I had still some um, gnawing uh, desires for certain things specifically cigarettes, uh, that, that thing went down hard, but thank God that I'm, I'm through that. Um, but, but I really will say to your listeners that, you know, only God can help you with any type of addiction like that, but it's choosing to say no. And it's choosing to, to know yourself, to be honest with yourself and say, you know, I can't be trusted. Even now, I t I am a volunteer for the rescue mission at Kern County. I teach women's classes there. These people are street. Some people are right off the street, some homeless, former homeless, but many are court-ordered placements. So I will tell them, I said, you don't trust yourself. You have to tell yourself, you cannot handle one drink, You mm -hmm. not even one glass of wine, mm -hmm. a half a glass of beer. No, don't do it. Don't even open that door. Be honest with yourself and and choose not to be a part of that. 
That's uh, yeah. I I don't think that's a very popular message with a lot of <laughs> with a lot of uh, recovery uh, treatment plans and stuff. But uh, but you're speaking you're speaking from experience there with that. So let's let's turn the corner here just a bit, and uh, I do want to talk about uh, you know what we're specifically relating to with with stronghold busting, and we're going to make sure to have good resources and links in our show notes today. Uh, you know, as you and I were trading emails, I, uh, I had mentioned, uh, you know, there's a, there's a really popular verse uh, that uh, comes straight from the Bible that you, that you hear in a lot of Christian weddings. And it's about a, a cord of three, three strands is not easily broken. And, and what is usually meant by that is, uh, you know, you've got the groom and the bride, and if Christ is is in the middle of that, you've got three strands uh, cord that's not easily broken. And I, I, you know, was thinking about you know the strongholds of discouragement, deception, and depression, and how they often come together as a cord of three strands. And yes. uh, you know, Proverbs twenty three tells us, as a person thinks, so so are they. So, you know, that is something that uh, you know we talk a lot about bondage breaking. And yes, there's a there's a spiritual warfare aspect to that, but also a part of it is again transformative thinking. How do you how do you reformat? You know, the way that you've become accustomed to think through, uh, you know, the bondage of this cord of three strands of you know, the deception, depression, discouragement. So what does stronghold busting look like? I'll, I'll tee that up. I'll let you swing at it here. But, you know, as we're talking about stronghold busting as an avenue of transformative thinking, explain that to our listeners. So um, such a great question. It's really about inviting God into your healing process. He brought you to this point. And so Ask him to show you where the whole point of deception began. For me, it took years uh, for him to show me exactly what happened and how he wanted to go about cutting me free. And I tried to do it myself. I'd done a lot of the right things, but that didn't work. Mm. And to invite God to show you your areas of deception for me, it's about praying a simple prayer that says, and this is from James 4, 6, and 7. And if you have your Bible, I want to just recommend that you open your Bible to James 4, 6, and 7. And it's basically praying a simple prayer. And you can write this down. In fact, I do a lot of um, street ministry, and I carry these prayers. And I'm going to just read to you what I share with homeless people, drug addicts, but also believers that they ask me questions about, you know, what do you do? So it says, dear Lord, please show me any area where I'm being deceived. And when you pray any area, man, that opens it up. If you ask God to show you something, that is a prayer that he wants to answer. He wants to meet you. And then you choose this. You say, I declare James 4, 6, and 7. And it says, submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then it's on you. So then you say, pray to the Lord. I choose to submit. What does submit mean? It has a negative connotation in our society. What submit means is yield. We yield all the time when we're driving. 
<laughs> you better yield when you're at a turn signal or a red light. You better let the other person go ahead of you, right? So yielding is a really positive thing. And when it comes to God, it's an important and essential thing because it says, I choose to yield myself or submit myself to you, Heavenly Father, because I choose to resist the devil. What does resisting the devil mean? It means turning the opposite direction than the devil wants you to go and saying no to him and renouncing it and saying to the devil, I choose God's way. And maybe you're not saying that to him, but you're doing it because you know that God has something better. Do you want a better life? Do you want a restful night? Do you want less anxiety, less fear? Then you can choose this way and you can say to yourself or to the Lord, I believe the enemy will leave me alone. He will run because that's what God's word tells me is that when I do choose to resist the devil, he has to run from me. And then close by saying, God, I want to be close to you. I believe you will come near to me and give me peace. In Jesus' name, amen. And I, I, you know, examined and I also expanded a little bit just because I wanted to explain it to you, but it's a short, simple prayer as you reveal, ask God to reveal those areas. And then that's the first step is praying the prayer. You can just say, God, show me where I'm being deceived. That's number one. Number two, believe God's word and not your feelings. Mm. Your feelings are liars. And we don't have to uh, do what our feelings tell us to do. Unfortunately, that's not a real popular thing in our our culture today. But um, behind every lie is a fear that really needs to be uncovered. And when we understand that, we can say to, to the Lord again, show me any way that my feelings are lying to me and help me to find the root of what's going on behind those feelings. I mean, definitely we should pay attention to depression, despair, discouragement, deception, because they're like a warning light on our dashboard. And we we know that. That's why we're talking about these concepts. The third thing is to face our past. And for most of us, this is really hard because we've wanted to run from it. We've wanted to bury it. We wanted to say, no, that didn't really happen. That's why I can't remember it. And often it's really a lot easier to ignore it until you come to the point like what happened to me I was a young mom, a pastor's wife. I couldn't get out of bed. I would I'd been uh I was pregnant with my second child and I had been running around after a toddler and I was depressed, couldn't get out of bed. That was my warning light on my dashboard. Mm. For years my first husband had been saying to me things like, "I wish you would figure out what's wrong with you." Mm. Well, guess what? If I knew to pray that prayer, "Dear Lord, please show me any area I've been deceived." Maybe I would have been able to make some progress, but I hadn't got to the point of facing the trauma that had happened when I was made as a child. And although some of you might think, well, that's not as bad as my trauma. Well, it's not a contest for one thing. The other thing is my trauma was important to me. And that was the beginning of the layers of the lies that tangled me up and the enemy knew exactly where to get in so that when I needed ways to cope when I I was desperate for trying to fit in. I was a victim of the enemy's plan. And when we decide that we want to face our past, that's why you have wonderful counselors like Chris and his practice 
that you can find a safe place where you can go to help the, to ask the Lord to help you guys unpack it together because we're not alone. And we don't need to believe the enemy's lies that nobody's gone through this before because God is able to help us with our community. As we wrap up another episode of the Resolutions Podcast, let me share a story that you might find helpful. Uh, This is a story that I often share with new clients at the close of a first session or an intake session. Uh, When I was a younger parent, I I once came home uh, at the end of the day and found my my wife very, very frustrated with my oldest daughter, who was probably about four years old at that time. And uh, I quickly surmised that my wife and my daughter were in the middle of of a power struggle. And uh, they had reached an impasse. And my, my wife was telling me that my daughter was in her bedroom and she had really, really refused to clean up her room, to put away her toys. Uh, it was dinner time. This was something that normally went on at the end of the day as we, from an early age, tried to help our children understand the value of, of putting things in order and in their proper place. And for whatever reason that day, my my oldest daughter was just reluctant to cooperate. So uh, I took a deep breath and uh, I walked down the hallway to her bedroom. And upon stepping into her bedroom, which was a tiny little space, there was so much clutter and toys. I could not even see the floor in this bedroom. And I thought, how have we accumulated all of these things? And there she was sitting on the edge of her bed, her little legs dangling over the side and her elbows were on her knees and her chin was resting in the palms of her hands and she just looked uh, so sad. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I called her by name and, and uh, I said, uh, your mom you know, tells me it's time for you to straighten up your room and to put your toys away because we're about to have dinner together. And she said, yes, daddy. And I said, well, I, I don't think that's happening. It doesn't look like your toys have been put away or that you're trying to put your to- toys away. No, that's right, she said. <laughs> and so I said, well, we're going to have to address this mess. So I'm going to step out of your room for a few minutes. And I want you to think, do you want to obey? I don't want you to worry about how you're going to put away all these toys. I just want you to think, are you willing to obey and to put your toys away? And so she agreed to consider that. And I stepped out her bedroom and walked down the hallway. And and, uh, I'm sure I walked past my wife while avoiding eye contact with her. And I went out into our garage and, and just just stood there and prayed for a few minutes. And, and I, I, I recall just telling God, I've never been a little girl before. <laughs> and, and I don't know, this is my first one to raise. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. And as I was praying over in the corner of the garage, I spotted a hula hoop and the light bulb went on. I grabbed that hula hoop, came back inside, down the hallway, 
left the hoop just right outside her bedroom door and stepped into my, my daughter's room once again and said, okay, it's time for us to put this room in order. Are you willing to obey and put your toys away? And she said, yes, daddy, I am. I said, well, that's great. So I grabbed the hoop and I, I brought it in her bedroom and I laid it in the floor and I, and I asked her to join me. She climbed off the bed and she came over and here we were looking at this hula hoop and I said, let's, let's not worry about all of your other toys. Let's just look at the toys that are inside the hoop. Do you know where each of those toys belong? She said, yes, I do. I said, okay, well, Let's just worry about putting these few toys in their right place. Do you think you can do that? Yes, Daddy, I can do that. I said, oh, that's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do it. I'm going to step out of the room. I'll be back in a few minutes to check on you. Okay. So I leave the room, and I, I'm probably at this point praying with my fingers crossed <laughs> that this is, is going to work. And, uh, and after a few minutes, I, I stepped back into my daughter's bedroom, and sure enough, I could see the floor. She put every one of those toys away uh, in their right spot that were inside the hoop. And so I, I picked up the hoop, and I moved it to another location in the floor, and you see where I'm going with this. We, we began the process again. And the thing that, that struck me that day was my daughter wasn't trying to be uh, rebellious and she wasn't trying to pick a fight with her mother. She wasn't trying to be uh, difficult. Uh, the clutter had just reached a place in her room where it was overwhelming and she just didn't know where to begin. And all she needed was for somebody to lay the hoop down give a little bit of direction and say, let's start here. And I, I tell that, that story often at a first session or an intake session because, you know, I want to provide some assurance to, uh, to the client that I'm working with that I know there's a lot of clutter uh, that can accumulate over time and it can be overwhelming, but, but, but I'm here with you and together we're going to trust God to just step by step get us started. Uh, he'll put the hoop down and then we are going to work as best as we can to put each of the items in the hoop in their proper place and perspective. And that, that story definitely came to mind as I was doing this interview for this particular episode. You know, um, untangling the lies that are so deeply embedded in us can seem like an overwhelming task. It's much like trying to clear out an enormous amount of clutter. It's hard to know where to begin, but God knows. And you can trust Him to be gentle, patient, kind, and wise you'll find this gracious yet thorough approach in Dr. Turner's book. In addition to this, I would commend licensed Christian counseling to you. Christian psychotherapy uh, in particular combines proven behavioral science with the never-changing special revelation of God's Word. If you're feeling like the knots are far too tangled, please do consider reaching out for help. You will be so glad that you did. And with that, we close out this episode of The Resolutions Podcast. Uh, we hope you've found this episode to be a dose of virtual sunlight. 
And we want you to be sure to check out the show notes for resources mentioned in this particular episode. As always, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and give us a positive rating on the platform of your choice. The Resolutions Podcast is a free resource. We desire to serve as many people as possible, and you can do your part by sharing our podcast with others on your social media posts, subscribing, and giving us positive ratings. Uh, If you're reluctant to do so, hit us up and let us know what we can do better. Thanks again for joining us. We'll catch you again when our next episode drops.